0: For another episode. How are you doing, tonight, Elliot?
1: I'm doing great, man. I cannot tell you. I've been waiting for this day to talk to someone <laughs> about DUTV. And we've got the producer on. So, man, I'm excited.
0: Awesome. Definitely going to um, be a good one. And excited for that as well. And, uh, you know, before, before we jump into the podcast, um, I want to do a little recap here. Um, I'm hot off the heels of the Indiana Deer Tricky Waterfowl Expo, and, um, I just want to give a big thanks to all the people who stopped by and said, hey, um, appreciate the content, and man, I was blown away with the, with the amount of people and the amount of support. So, it was really cool meeting a lot of you guys, and you guys know who you are. Um, I mean, so many people came up and said, hey, that watch podcasts, podcast, watch the videos, and so, um, you know, it was, uh, a. <laughs> a nice little pat on the back and uh i don't know it was just it was pretty cool so uh real quick let's go ahead and thank our partners of the podcast and then we'll jump into it and we got um, john on like i said the producer D U T V tv so stay tuned should be a good one so first off like to give a big thanks out to htr innovations um, from gun stands, A-frames, the quack pack, they got some awesome waterfowl products and, and you guys know I work hand in hand with them. I work with HDR every day, um, on the waterfowl products. So make sure to check them out. Um, to highlight one, one of the, the, the products, the A-frame, um, use it a ton this year, um, on the last hunt of the season, kind of to show, showcase um, its usefulness. Out there in the middle of a snow-covered field, we put two A-frames side-by-side. Side. Um, they're all American-made. They slip together in a matter of minutes. We had them both up brushed up perfect out there in the middle of the field, and we shot a four-man limit of geese with the Michigan boys, me and Swamp Man, out of the HDR A-frames. Um, so make sure to head over there. Use code DUTGUN10 for uh, 10% off free shipping on the gun stands, A-frames, quack packs, you name it. Go check them out. Hcinnovations.com.
1: Guys, we have talked a lot about Bandit, Avery, and GHG this past season. And, you know, Jordan and I have been using a lot of their products. And I there's not a single one that I've heard Jordan ever complain about. And there is not one that I'm hap- unhappy with either. But one thing we have not talked to you guys about, which is Avery Sporting Dog which if you guys watch my YouTube channel, you know I've got Georgie and she is in the heart of her training, getting her ready for next year. And Avery Sporting Dog is a place that you can go to. In fact, if you go to bandit.com, you can access Bandit, Avery, JG, and Avery Sporting Dog. You can get bumpers, collars, just anything that you need to get your dog primed up and ready. Or if you're like Jordan and you got more of a seasoned dog like old Chief, uh they can meet your needs there too and also i realized that i didn't realize this until i just got on there now they've got uh chris aiken's duck dog basics one two and three which freddie king actually filmed those DVDs with chris aiken and just the over flatlander kennels he said hey when you're training your dog either go to freddie king's the retrievertrainer.com or make sure that you get duck dog basics with chris aiken one two and three So, go on over to bandit.com, check out Avery Sporting Dog for your dog training needs.
0: Awesome. All righty. Let's go ahead and jump right into the podcast. What's going on, folks? Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Duck Gun Podcast. I'm Jordan from Duck Gun Chronicles, your host. And alongside me, per usual, my co host, Elliot. Graybeard, the greatest of beards from freelance duck hunting, and our guest tonight is John. How you doing tonight, John?
2: Jordan, I'm doing great. Uh, first, I'd like to thank y'all for having me on. It, uh, I listened to uh, some of the podcasts when I knew I was going to be coming on here, and I tell you what, you guys do a great job, and I'm, I'm glad to be here.
0: Awesome, awesome. Really appreciate it. Um, definitely excited to have you on tonight and um, talk about everything you got going on with DU and DUTV. So real quick, great, great. real quick. Um, as we get started with the podcast, let's go ahead and um, if you can let people know, um, I guess, who you are and a little bit what you go, got going on. And specifically, um, let's touch on uh, DUTV there.
2: Okay, you know, my name is John Gordon, and I, my title at Ducks Unlimited is Senior Communications Specialist, which, I don't know, it sounds fancy, but what I primarily do for DU is I'm production coordinator for DU TV and DU Films. And what that really entails is I put together all the logistics for the show. Who's going to be on there, the locations, put all the details together, you know, and work with the production company to produce the final product that you see.
0: Awesome. Awesome. So that's, uh, you know, something that me and Elliot have been been watching for a while um with DUTV, tv and uh, you know it sounds like a you know pretty cool cool job and everything you got going on with that
2: yeah i, I can say that it, it's really cool <laughs> it's almost like i've got my own tv show you
0: yeah, know that's cool
2: and uh it you know so i get to choose the locations and the people involved and i really kind of think to myself what would i want to see as a 40 plus year waterfowl hunter you know what, uh, what would excite me to really keep my attention on the screen. And I just kind of go from there.
1: Now, John, that's I am a long time fan of DUTV. And so I'm kind of curious, can you give us a little history of it? How long has it been going? When did it get started? Um, when did your involvement start? Just kind of give us a background of the show.
2: DUTV is. Pretty historic, I guess, in waterfowl hunting because it's the longest-running waterfowl TV show in existence. Started back in 1998. Um, you guys remember the first co-host of the show? I guess he was just the host. Was Jameson Parker? Yes. You know Simon and Simon. Mm-hmm. He uh, he had done some video work for DU, and when they decided to do a TV show, he was the first host. And so he just traveled around and. and you know, uh, we did a lot of what we do now, you know, to, you know, capture some really cool hunts and then bring the conservation message to, to the people out there uh, that we're really trying to do, what Ducks Unlimited does for wildlife Conservation. Um, so it really started there, and it just kept going and going and going. And what I think we're most proud of the show is that, you know, all these years later, guys, that started watching – 15, 20 years ago are still with the show and, and
1: still love it. Yeah. And now the thing about even, I don't remember when I started watching. I, I definitely know that I was watching back then. I got avid when you guys started putting them online and you could go back and watch, I think 2007 was the first season that you could watch when it was online and you could click from year to year to year. And I remember background 2007, eight, nine, 10, every year, I'd go back and watch all of those episodes where where was du tv running when it first came out what what channels was it running on and and how did that progress um until you guys started kind of get more getting more internet based
2: yeah it started out on the Nashville network cnn which is now versus i believe is what that network became um so it was really part of uh you know country music you know, programming station, you know, and, and so they really, you know, DUTV was, it uh, came on, I remember, it came on Saturday mornings, I believe, because mm-hmm. I started watching it too when it first came out and really looked forward to it every episode. And it was on Saturday mornings. Um, the first time they would show it was, and then it, it later got on the outdoor channel and then now it's on Pursuit. And then, of course, like you said, every episode that we put out now is, is, uploaded to the DU site and then also to our YouTube channel.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. It's definitely done uh, really well on the, on the YouTube as well here. Um seeing those come out on there. So, um, but I guess uh, at what part did you come on board with, uh, with DU and doing that?
3: I
2: first started working for DU in October of 2018. So it hasn't been that long. It, uh, I, had, I had developed a relationship uh, with my current boss, James Powell, uh, through my days at, at Avery and Bandit, and uh, Eric Kessler, who was uh, in my position, he moved over to the magazine full-time as an editor, so it opened up a position, and since I, you know, I, I had really you know, been involved in the waterfowling and the waterfowling industry for quite a long time, it was just a natural fit that, uh, you know, I would be good to work with the TV show and the films. Uh, just, you know, I got a lot, have a lot of connections from from all that over the years with people all over the country. And I have a good understanding of waterfowling and all the different types of waterfowling that you can do. So, you know, uh, it just gave me a unique insight into producing the show.
1: So you were producing then 18 and 19 and 19 and 20. So this was your second year as the producer this the past season?
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. And didn't really, they had already had all the shows pretty well locked in by the time I got there. I did some tweaking on some stuff and, and worked on a couple of episodes, you know, finalizing some details. But for the most part, it was done. Mm-hmm. So this past season was my real first one to really get my feet wet on my own. As far as putting together all all the dis- details and logistics for the show, so it's been a lot of fun, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing the footage from uh, from the episodes uh, to see what comes out. And I tell you what, we're we're not through uh, with this season. We decided to do a uh, a spring snow goose episode, which is going to take place. I'm going to start filming that on Friday, so Friday, Saturday, Sunday. So the show is still going on right now.
1: Where, where are you guys filming at?
2: This is uh, this is in, this will be in Missouri at Habitat Flat. Oh,
1: great! Yeah,
2: interesting oh, well. thing came up on that deal was well, I've known Tony Vandemore a long time from my days at Avery,
1: but uh,
2: uh, one of our board members uh, from Delaware, um, he put together a party of guys to go down there, and one of his guys pulled out, and that basically opened the door for us to be able to slide in there into that party and film this hunt and one of the premier locations for snow goose hunting in the country i talked to tony yesterday and he said they've probably got between six and seven hundred thousand birds in the area right Mm. now so it's going to be quite a spectacle you know the hatch wasn't great and it's been a bit of a struggle this year for a lot of folks but you know overall i think just being in that location and knowing that you know tony is, is gonna is gonna get on some birds so uh, I feel pretty confident it's going to make for a great episode.
1: So this, so you guys are just finishing up filming for the 1920 season. So next season, the videos we watch, those are kind of kind of be your first batch of babies that you're putting out there for everyone to see then.
2: Yeah, that's right. That's right. You know, this is the, uh, this is my first season and it was really a lot of fun putting it together. And you know, we went all over the place, you know, from, Oh gosh, started out in North Dakota, And ended up, you know, from there in Ontario, Canada, back to Saskatchewan, uh, back south to Idaho, Texas, even went to Arizona. We uh, had a really cool show that a lot of folks are going to love, I think, is the one we did in Arizona that that we actually stayed in Tombstone. So this is southern Arizona, you know, right there near the Mexican border. Hmm. And in the desert to where people, you know, you really don't want to think about as being a waterfowling destination, but it's a really cool part of the country and they've got a lot of ducks.
1: Yeah.
0: Awesome. So here's the million dollar question. So what do we got to do to get Elliot on an episode of ducks unlimited?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Elliot on an episode of ducks unlimited. Well, you know, I might know somebody has some control over that. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, I'm sure we can work something out. You know, it's, I've got I'm working on the next season right now, Oh, wow. and uh, this one's going to be really, uh, really cool. I've already got stuff lined up for Washington State, uh, Texas again. I think we're going to start there. I may I mean, I'm trying to get an episode together for North Dakota for August for the you know really the first season that opens up in the country, which is early Canada in August in North Dakota. Uh, I've got Prince Edward Island, Canada lined out. With a longtime friend of mine, Paul McKinnon, up there.
3: Hmm. Uh, so it's it's
2: you know I'm I'm on it right now and, and I hope to have the entire season pretty well lined out by, oh gosh, by within the next thirty days
0: I would think. Oh wow. Yes, uh, definitely have have your scheduled out um, pretty far in advance.
2: <laughs> yeah, and you know that's a disadvantage, but it's just kind of the nature of the UTV. There's so many there's so many moving parts to it because we have to, you know, bring the Ducks Unlimited side of it into it. And, and you've got, you know, a separate production company and, and other people involved. So I can't just sit there on go saying, well, you know, when you get birds, you know, we'll be there. It, it's really, it's different than that, that you have to really plan this way in advance because of people's, you know, they have other, other things they're doing, jobs, careers. And mm-hmm. you've got to bring these people together. So they've got to plan this well in advance. So sometimes it works out great. Sometimes it does. not So you just have to take the roll with the punches on that and just really have a lot of different locations planned out. So you really can get a full 13 episode season.
1: It's amazing. You guys are as successful as you are, because I mean, I've done some hunt trips and everything. And, and when you have to set hunt trips on a calendar date to accommodate everyone going, man, that's way more difficult to have success. Because you know, you may think it's a great weekend and set it in advance a year, but the ducks—they may have some different ideas, you know.
2: Oh yeah, it, it really—you know—went to North Dakota in, in in late September. Well, they had record rainfall, and it really made things difficult up there because you had water everywhere in areas that really don't have a lot of water normally. To where you, you know those birds are really concentrated in those pothole areas early in the year because all those birds are really residents at that point. But at this point, this year, there was water everywhere, so they were scattered all over the place. So we really had to scout uh, a tremendous amount and to really find some birds to get on. And, uh, yeah, I mean, we were up there for five days, and, you know, a couple of the hunts just just really were nothing. And so we were scratching around, and we turned out a good show, but it just took a lot of effort to do that. And that's but that's just, like I said, for, for us, it's just kind of the nature of the beast because we just can't, can't wait around and hope that uh the birds are going to be in a location and we just go then they're just like i said just too many moving parts yeah absolutely
1: now as the producer do you go on every single trip and you're and you're just running the logistics of everything and do you also hunt on these trips or are you just behind the scenes what is your role hunt to hunt
2: <clears throat> well i shoot i would love to be able to go on all of them but they're just not budget money for that for me to travel to every one of them but you know i'll try to go on i'll pick and choose three or four different hunts per year that i want to go on and you know most of the time i'm, I'm just there you know giving support and helping out where i can um you know i have i have to uh, the trigger on a few of those hunts and that's a lot of fun but that's not really you know that's not the reason i'm there i'm just really there to help the guys try to put on the quality episode so this past year i was i went to north dakota uh, the Texas Coast, my old stomping grounds, which is pretty cool. I hadn't really been back down there. to really do much hunting in a long time. Um, let's see, where else did I go for DUTV? Let's see, I was in Arkansas. Pretty close by deal there. And that's about it. And I, I did a couple DU films, shoots as well. Awesome.
1: Being as though that you're... Um... You know, so heavily involved in DU films, and you came on the podcast and everything. I think it would be really great if we kind of dug a little bit more into your background to let our listeners know, kind of where did you grow up, how did you get into waterfowling, and just kind of go through what was your life like up until the point that you got to DU TV.
2: <laughs> that's a that's a that's a big question, Elliot, <laughs> uh, because I'll like, say I think this I think this season for me if I'm right about this was season either 40 or 41, uh, in my life. I just turned 51 the other day. So I started out when I was 10, uh, just in, in Mississippi, uh, my uncle, my uh, mother's brothers is the guy that really introduced me to it. He grew up as a quail hunter in the hills of Mississippi near, near Winona in Montgomery County. And that's, and, you know, that's what everybody did. Then there was, there was, you know, tremendous amount of wild quail. Everybody had pointing dogs. My grandfather had uh, English pointers and setters. And they really uh, hunted quail extensively. Then as he kind of he got older, he ended up one of his first jobs was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And he had a, a friend of the guy that was a big duck hunter. And his family was, had a big farm. So he took him duck hunting and my uncle fell in love with it. So fast forward, I'm a little kid coming up. And my dad was basically a deer hunter. He didn't, he didn't duck hunt. So I had been on a few deer hunting trips with him and my uncle took me duck hunting. And it really,
3: <clears throat>
2: if you think back in your life at moments where everything changed, for me, it was those early duck hunts when I was a 10 year old kid in Mississippi with my uncle and his buddies that I just fell in love with it so much that it became my entire life. Uh it, you know, to where I, you know, I'm, I'm involved in, in some sort of waterfowling 365 days a year, really. As far as planning for the show, working for DU, you know, hunting, working with dogs. I, I've i got a young golden retriever that I'm currently involved in hunt testing with. He got his HRCH back in November. We're working on Master Hunter now.
0: Nice.
2: Anyway, so my, my entire life revolves around waterfowling at some point or another.
0: So, so real quick but, uh, before so you So, anyway,
2: I started out young.
0: R- real quick before kid, you uh oh. And
2: end up getting transplanted to Texas when I was 12. So, you know, when you're a kid, you don't really have a choice on what you where you live, so
0: Can I, can uh, I, I stop you real moved quick? Out
2: that way. Sure, go ahead.
0: So, something that really intrigued me intrigues me about what you're saying is um and you know, it sounds too good to move on without really diving into that a little bit deeper, but um, you're kind of talking about how life-changing it was to remember those hunts um, in Mississippi, I think you said with your dad and uncles. Um, I mean, can you, can you just dive into that a little bit deeper? Like, what was the hunting like at that time in your life?
3: Well,
2: it, it was pretty, it was fascinating to me. Like I said, I had never seen anything like that. I'm a 10-year-old kid, you know, just at that point you know, play a little little league baseball, then a little here there, you know, the one at school and all you're just a little kid. And then I go out there to a blind, it's a tarsus Mississippi. It's in the it's in the heart of the Mississippi Delta, not too far from Yazo City. And just watching those birds fly and and cut through the air, I was I was immediately fascinated by it. Just totally enthralled by it. You know, didn't have a gun in my hand, anything. I was freezing to death. It just seemed like it was colder back then. You know, we're talking about late 1970s, early 80s, and it just seemed like every time we went out, we were breaking ice, and it was just you know. And I had old hand-me-down stuff. You know, my uncle had uh, had an old pair of old those old canvas and rubber waders. Man, that were just talk about freezing yourself to death in them. Uh, you know, there was no youth gear or anything, no youth clothing for kids. Kids these, these days have got it made. So, you know, I'm wearing some old hand-me-down stuff, old army jacket or whatever is passed down, way too big, freezing to death, and absolutely loved every second of it. And and that's what got me hooked, you know, and, and it was the camaraderie too. It's uh, My uncle um, had a real close circle of friends, and those people are still his friends today. So I've known some of those guys basically all my life for over 40 years. And now I'm kind of at 51, I'm the youngster, and they're all in their 70s. And to still be with those guys and, and having, a, having a good time with them is just is fantastic. And it's all because of duck hunting. It's all because those guys took me out there and took me into their wing and made me a part of the crowd, maybe a part of the group. It was such a great experience to begin with that I just couldn't get enough of it. And it just continued on until like, when I was in Texas, you know, a couple of years later, and, you know, that's a whole nother story we'll go into, but
0: that's, that's where it all started. Awesome.
1: So what, when I, I know that you said you got into working with, with banded, how did that opportunity arise? Did you go to, did you end up going to college or how did you transition from your early years to your more professional life?
2: <clears throat> well, that's, that's a great question, Elliot, because I didn't. I I wasn't going down a path that really would have taken me anywhere there initially. I uh, I I'm, I graduated from Mississippi State. I, I'm a communications major uh, from state, but I so I would come back from Texas at that point to go to school um, over at at state. My uh, my mom and dad both went to school there, and I just I love Mississippi so much that I really wanted to come back and go to school there versus you know A and M or Texas out there. So I came back with the school there, ended up working for my uncle who introduced me to hunting. He was, uh, at that point, he was mainly a big home builder at that point. He's, he's more of a commercial real estate developer now, but he was into home building. So I, I started out working for him after college, uh, uh building new homes as a construction superintendent. And we continued, you know, to hunt together and all that. And, but, uh, Later on, I ended up, you know, not really liking the construction business. You know, it just wasn't, it really wasn't for me. So I ended up going back out to Texas. And at that point, that's where another really, really life-changing event happened for me. Uh, When I grew up in Houston, different times as far as the way the media was, you know, now you you got the social media, you got stuff like this, podcasting and all that. It didn't exist. I tell you, what we had were, were the outdoor writers of the newspapers. And the Houston Chronicle had a great set of writers. It was it was Chris, uh, let's see, Joe Doggett and Doug Pike and Shannon Tompkins. And I just really recently talked to Shannon Tompkins uh, not too long ago. I got to meet him for the first time. He just retired from the Chronicle. As, you know, papers have really gone, you know, kind of the way of the dinosaur in a lot of ways. But anyway, those guys were <clears throat> really, I poured over everything they wrote every week. And they had a big, Outdoor section in the Chronicle on Thursdays and a big section on Sundays. And well, especially Doug Pike, who was the former guide uh, down there on the Texas coast, used to write about a lot with with waterfowling, specifically goose hunting, because at those days, the Texas coast was the snow goose and speckle belly capital of the world, really. Places like Eagle Lake, Texas, and Katy, Texas, and Bay City, Texas, were where everybody came. Who wanted to hunt light geese. There was no conservation season or anything like that. It was an entirely different situation then. But those guys, you know, really made the goose guy seem like, you know, just an incredible thing to be. You know, the guy that everybody looked up to, take him out in the field and and uh, get their birds. You know, guys like Jimmy Real and Clifton Tyler, uh, Larry Gore, Butch Wagner. I mean, these guys were – rock stars to me as a kid and i'm growing up in a time where you know hunting wasn't really cool you know it, it it was really not something that everybody thought like now it it was really a cool thing to do so but i was just enthralled by it because of my early you know duck hunting days and coming to texas with the whole goose hunting thing opened up to me you know i would you could sit outside on uh, you know october afternoon at uh, At our house in Houston, and watch just literally thousands and thousands of snow geese migrating over and into the prairies southwest of Houston. And so that was to me it was just enthralling, and I I, just, I had to be a part of it. So fast fast forward, I come back to Texas after working for my uncle in construction, and I was I was uh, working in some other stuff there, but I decided I really wanted to be a guide you know are just something I really really wanted to do so I went to a, a hunting show down at the Astro Hall which is which is right next to the Houston Astrodome and everybody who was everybody in the waterfowl business was there and I met some people and ended up talking to a guy named Bob oh gosh what was Bob's last name I cannot remember it but Bob was the manager for an outfit called Texas Waterfowl out there. And they, they you know, I was out of nowhere. I had no connections to anybody there. I didn't really know what I was doing as far as, you know, I knew how to, how to hunt and how to kill birds, but I didn't have any idea how to be a guide. But those guys agreed to, you know, let me help out and, you know, do some work with them and stuff like that and get my feet wet and go out with some of the other guides and just to see if I could do it. So that's where that all started and I ended up guiding for, for TWO for a couple of years and ended up being a full time guide later on down there in El Campo, Texas. And for a different outfit, but a guy who was who had who had been the manager at TWO before a guy named Tony Hurst. It was Paradise Hunting Club. Great group of guys I guided with down there. It was it was a blast. But that's where I ended up uh, Thing was was down in that area for a while and then uh came back to mississippi later on uh but uh, el campo was, you know it's where i met my wife um it was where you know i really i really kind of felt like you know i grew up as a person and as a man was down there and you learn a lot about yourself out there in the field guiding people you really do you, you really learn a lot about who you are and how much you can take in, you know, down there in the mud. And I mean, it was just, it, you know, guiding geese in those days especially was just an absolute grind. I mean, we would, we would, you know, wake up at four, take the guys out, put out a thousand wind socks, hunt till noon, pick it up, get, get out that afternoon, scout and do it all over again, sometimes 15, 20 days in a row. And like I said, you just really learn a lot about yourself, but you know, I wouldn't trade those days for the, for anything in the world because, you know, it was just a fantastic time and I was young and, you know, the geese were plentiful and it was just a great experience.
1: So you probably have a very special place in your heart for snow geese then, I imagine.
2: <laughs> I hate those jokers for the past man. <laughs> I like to take a flamethrower to them, you know, and just watch them burn and scream for so the most part. Because, you know, when you hunt them that hard, and like I did, Man, I mean, they get you a lot more than the times you get them. I mean, there can't be anything harder to guide for in the world than snows, especially blowing mouth calls and hunting with wind socks. And man, having just grinded out on those jokers, and like I said, for every day that you really got into them and, and got a little bit of revenge, they would just boy, they would really punch you in the guts. Otherwise, so uh, you know, it's a love hate relationship for sure. For me, and snows. They
1: are erratic birds. <laughs>
2: Yeah, the most unpredictable bird there is. Yeah. You know, we were talking about, you know, DTV doing the goose episode. I was like, man, I was telling the guys to I'm like, you know, you scare me to death because it's just, they're so unpredictable. I don't have any clue. And I and I really didn't want to do one much uh, down here. I wanted to go farther up the flyway. You know, just those birds can be easier to deal with when they're migrating. Mm-hmm. But then when the deal came up with Tony, and like I said, if anybody uh, there is in the business that I trust – really you know be able to put people on birds to Tony vandamore so that just worked out you know perfectly but like i said they made me nervous man i just got too much experience with them. yeah
1: so transitioning back into du tv um in your time there do you have any favorite episodes that you've been a part of or just or any stories or anything that just kind of sticks out to you is maybe your favorite moment or favorite episodes since, since your time is there
2: Oh, wow. Yeah. There was, uh, we did an episode, which actually turned into two last year, uh, with a guy named Joe Reddy in Oklahoma. And if y'all, if y'all, if if you saw it last year, uh, you saw those episodes. It was was in Oklahoma Mm -hmm. at at a a little piece of land. I say, you know, it's 120-something acres. I mean, compared to some of the, you know, giant, you know, rice country stuff we hunt in Arkansas and stuff like that, it's pretty small. But it's just a little small place that he had uh, has been cultivating for the past twenty years. And Joe Reddy is one of those guys that you just you meet and you just immediately like him. I mean, Joe is one of those really really charismatic personalities, man. He he was just so much fun to be around and so much fun, fun to hunt with. And what's crazy <clears throat> not crazy it makes perfect sense is that you know Joe's it lives in a little bitty town about three thousand people called Chandler, Arizona, and Joe's consistently one of the top producing DU chapters in the entire state of Oklahoma, because he's got people coming from all over the place around Oklahoma City and the surrounding area to go to his chapter banquet, because he's such a show himself. Yeah. So we captured a little bit of that in those episodes, but before that, it was just hunting. It was just it could have been the weather was perfect, everything lined up. This was the first episode that I'd ever gone on. Uh, the co-host for that episode is Doug Larson, and Doug and I have since become a good friends. Doug is a really great guy, great writer, a guy who's traveled all over the world, and, and I respect a great deal. Just talked to Doug today, as a matter of fact, about an upcoming deal that we're trying to do. But he uh, he was there, and you know we got to you know we got some fantastic hunting. It was it was mallards and pintails and green tail in the sunshine, and You know, we were able to make two episodes out of it, which is hard to do. Uh, You're trying to put 40 plus minutes of of video on there and make it exciting. So, you know, that's really so far what I've been involved with has been one
1: of my favorites. It's funny that you should pick Oklahoma because I can tell you right now by far my favorite episode of DUT ever um, was in Oklahoma. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Jordan and I both have waterfowl YouTube channels um, that are relatively successful and, and the name of my youtube channel is freelance duck hunting and the first time I ever heard that phrase was um was Wade Bourne and Jordan and I are both public land duck hunters so for me when DUTV does do public land hunts I I, I much prefer it just because I relate to it more I'm a public land duck hunter and and Wade Bourne um the, he, you guys were hunting down there and I think it was Lake Ufala. And Wade Bourne was using um, the phrase freelance duck hunting Throughout that entire episode And they went back in on the lake And they found a little pothole That was just kind of off by itself And I don't think they shot a limit But there was just something about First of all, Wade Bourne was just The way he carried himself The way he talked about hunting The relationship he showed with his son He was the draw to me during that time frame Was watching him And, and I read some of his articles I just, I just loved him and uh, that episode just encompassed everything I loved about public land duck hunting. So when I went to start my YouTube channel, I named it Freelance Duck Hunting based on that one episode. And I still it hasn't been it's been a while, but I would still go back and I probably watched that single episode seven or eight times. And it just really, really impacted me.
2: that's fantastic man you know i've heard a lot of stories about that you know the utv has really had had an impact on on people and and you know we're very very proud of that Wade was one of those great characters in in waterfowling he really was and actually we're doing a, a du film a tribute to wade this year and uh we're still putting that together right now we've got to go uh up here in march to uh meet with his his wife and his son and one of his best friends we're gonna we're gonna do the interviews and shoot and everything in wade's office right there home. Wow. and uh you know put together some you know like i said folks should just talk about wade and you know what kind of man he was and you know we're gonna use some old clips from from the show integrated into the film and i, I think it's gonna be a really nice moment for folks because wade was such an icon <clears throat> it was such a big blow Of the show and wait suddenly passed, And he just left a huge void That we're still trying Mm -hmm. to fill
1: Yeah I I honestly I kind of stopped Watching the show for a little while um, When he wasn't on it anymore Not not I didn't make a conscious decision To do it but I I just His presence was just it was I think the whole waterfowl community was kind of Mourning
2: I agree I agree Like I said it was just it was a huge hole Left in that deal and, you know, Wade, I didn't know Wade well, but it, I do him some, you know, from my days at Avery talking about snow and hunting and stuff. So he, he actually interviewed me for a couple of articles. He wrote for the magazine on snow goose hunting. So I had uh, dealt with him that way, but uh, you know, what a fantastic guy and a great writer as well. Yeah.
1: Well, before, before some of us start crying here, thinking about Wade, Bourne, we better, let's move on. <laughs> Another question I really am curious is how do you guys pick, Um, your hunt locations and specifically, how do you pick a good mix between public land, private land? I'm sure you guys all have a meeting and sit down. Where should we target? How how do you kind of develop what you want to do as far as the locations?
2: Well, like I said, a lot of it, I just, you know, sit down and, and think about, like I said before, what would be something that I would like to see on the show? And, That's really kind of where I developed uh, the idea for the Arizona show this past year, talking about public land because all that hunt takes place on public Mm -hmm. lands, and it's like, wow, you know, I've just never seen that before. I've never seen you know a show take place you know in the in really what's a desert, but it's a desert that has these these wetlands that are oases in that desert, which really concentrate. All of the birds in that area, into that one spot or several spots, and these are wildlife management areas primarily that, that we we hunted on. And you know, so it's just ideas. To really, it's where it starts with me. Then running past, you know, different people, the folks at Moose Media, our production company there. That the, the, Moose is actually a Mossy Oak division. And then my boss and some other folks in communications. We just take a look at, you know. Would this be a good idea? What, what you know? What's the story really behind it? You know, who are we going to have on it to really tell? Also, you know, have a good duck hunting story, but a good conservation story as well. So, it's a community. It's a it's a collective effort. Um, but it already kind of starts me just asking myself that question: Where would I like to go? And what would I like to
1: see? Yeah. Now I'm a little biased on this next question. I I'm a Kansas hunter. I grew up in Central Kansas. I'm kind of out on the plains, and now I'm on the eastern side of the state, which is a mix of more reservoirs and a little bit of timber. Um, And I know DU has been to Kansas a lot. In fact, there was one season about, I don't know, about five or six years ago, I think, where it was like four of the episodes were in Kansas. But one thing I would love to see is a central Kansas shallow marsh public land hunt. And I don't, if DU has been there, I don't recall it. Something like, I'm sure you're aware of Cheyenne Bottoms or or something of that nature. I man, if, if you guys could ever get out to that area, it's just spectacular. That would be a phenomenal. There's so much history involved in it, and it's such a. I mean, it's the biggest inlet marsh in the United States. Um, just a wonderful place.
2: Yeah, and that that idea definitely come up. And I actually I spent some time in Kansas mid January this year. Actually, we put together a, a media hunt. That's another part of. of of my job in communications too is working with uh, some of the you know print media guys and we were there
3: I'm trying to remember the
2: name of the little town we were close to anyway what what I really noticed though what really hit me uh, about Kansas is Kansas reminds me of what really Mississippi and Arkansas used to be mm. because I don't let's see we were there three days. I saw one flock of gadwalls, one ringneck, and one group of green ming teal, and every other duck that we saw was was a mallard. That's what you used to see down there 15, 20, 30 years ago, uh, was you would have to really hunt around and search for another kind of duck besides a mallard, Mm -hmm. and those mallards have seemed to have, have stayed more north and west than they used to and that's you know the flyways are dynamic you know they're not static and so you know the you know people complain about it good lord knows we at du we've heard it all about you know short stopping that seems to be a really really big phrase for yeah. people but i think it's just a shift you know naturally that's just you know the mallard population a lot of it winters far the north and west than it used to. I've,
0: I've heard that it's um that that it's the heated ponds
2: <laughs> yeah i love that deal yeah the heated uh hot cropping that's another really uh buzzword people like to use you know like the that uh you know i've heard all these crazy stories about the du it's got all these giant heated ponds and all this stuff like we've just got these you know this massive amount of money to uh just you know create these massive oasis and keep them open and all that stuff and you know i mean it's just to me it's just crazy you know i mean what we do is is well you know restoration enhancement things like that i mean we don't have the resources to uh, try to concentrate a bunch of ducks keep people from hunting them you know that just seems to be a, a crazy notion that uh, i think is pretty fun
1: yeah it seems to me as always it's all about weather patterns it's all about weather patterns
2: that's true that's true and i like i said you know i was talking about that early time when i was a kid mm-hmm. it seemed like it was always cold yeah. In Mississippi, and it was every time we went out, there was just there was never this sixty-five degree, you know, rise in the temperatures for a few days. It was always seemed to be pretty steady, and that's what I've seen over the last few years too. Just like that trip to Kansas is a prime example. When we got there, um, it it uh, we had the snow came in. I think it snowed six seven inches. Of course, for me, a guy who lives here, you know, in the Memphis area, that's you know that's a mm. blizzard. Okay. But by the time we left, let's see, I think that was Saturday. By the time we left the state on Tuesday, it was 65 degrees, and there wasn't a speck of snow to be found. So what, you know, what I don't see anymore is that, you know, enduring stretches of cold weather anymore. You'll get fronts, you know, and, you know, you get an initial blast of cold air, but within a few days it goes straight back up. Yeah. So, you know, like I, talking to Doug Larson, he lives in uh, uh, Pennsylvania, but he hunts a lot in Ohio. And also, you know, one of the you know, addition we haven't talked about this year, you know, talk about co hosts. Uh, Fred Zink is now part of the U T V and he uh he did several episodes and, and actually Freddie's gonna be the host on this Habitat Flats shoot that we're doing right now. But Fred was talking about it too, that, that the Great Lakes really have no ice on them whatsoever. I and mean, those lakes are supposed to be frozen in right now. This is in February and they, they're wide open. So you just you're seeing some weather anomalies that you know, I think it's really, really affected the migration.
1: Yeah. I couldn't agree more. I've got a friend uh, lives up in Wisconsin and I know multiple years out of the last five, he's like, well, we can't do any ice fishing up here, you know, and you got guys down South crying and whining about you? Yeah. It's like, just look at the weather. All you have to do is look at the typical <laughs> weather versus yeah. this year. There's your answer. And I just quit your crying, move North. <laughs> but that honestly, I think that's why Kansas <laughs> yeah, man, is such a wonderful place said. because, Um, starting in September with teal, there's always ducks in Kansas. They never get all the way South of us. And if they do, you're talking a massive, massive cold blast where everything's frozen. And as soon as that ice comes up, you've got hundreds of thousands of birds. So it's, I think that this, you know, Missouri, Kansas, it's a real good area as far as not too cold, not too hot, always kind of birds mingling in there. So we don't really ever have just horrible years where the birds don't come south or we don't have horrible years where they stay up north it's kind of in that pocket you know
2: oh yeah i agree i agree yeah that's that's like i said those areas have really become what the the deep south was you know areas like famous areas like stuttgart arkansas mm-hmm. you know which still has you know some pretty good duck honey but it's it's a much more inconsistent than it was 20 years yeah. ago i went. And like I said, if you, if you really like want consistent hunting, I'd say Kansas really would, and Oklahoma yeah. too, would be two states that I would say those are the states that you really need to be in now. Yeah, good state. I was
1: down in around Stuttgart with uh, Joel Stricken at Cypress Crossings around Christmas. I was down there um, filming some stuff with Joel, and we did okay, but a couple of days it was, you know, 60, 62 degrees. Like, well, it kind of makes it a little bit tough.
2: <laughs> ain't that the truth and of course once again this year we had an ocean of water i mean there's so much water around right now i i know the farmers are probably just uh, almost in panic mode uh yeah because the pattern right now it'll be dry for a couple of days rain for three mm-hmm. or four dry for a couple of days rain for three or four i there's so much water the rivers are all out big time all the fields are just completely saturated i know they got to be getting nervous i mean it's getting close to march at this point, and i don't see any any way they're going to plant, you know, I don't know if they could plant within the next month, really.
1: Well, that's how we were here uh, in Kansas last year. We were, we were in full flood stage for six straight months and man, talk about lack of duck habitat, at least on the East side of the state. Yeah, that's true. And I, uh, I, I made uh, a trip.
2: Uh, Like I said, I'm a Mississippi state grad. I went to the college rural series in Omaha uh, back, you know, back this past June and I got to, you know, drive through and see some of that flooding up there in, in the Midwest from the Missouri river, man, I was just like blown away. And I went back up through that same corridor going to North Dakota in September and nothing no. had changed. I mean, that water was all still there. And I was just like, wow. what, what I mean, when, when is this water ever going to go away? It
1: didn't go away till, you know, until mid October. It was unbelievable.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah we you know I know I-29 was flooded in different stages all over the place going through there yeah
1: we had to travel west to do have any success at all and then on this east side it was just the crops were bad the habitat was bad and the ducks were I don't know if they I'm sure some of them went farther into Missouri and some of them went out west but man they sure were avoiding us
3: yeah
2: yeah I could definitely see that and yeah they got to go somewhere um, for sure. So you're probably right. They probably just went both ways, and, and you know, because they really—I don't think they really went south, yeah. from what I saw.
1: Well, let's kind of wrap up the Dutv talk. What is there any plans that you have in the future, or progressions, or that you would like to see the show make, or or what can we expect from Dutv over the next year, two, three years?
2: Well, you know, I think. One thing that, that we've really been in looking at is the progression of, of outdoor television and, and where it's headed. You know, I don't know if the current format of, you know, basically there's three different channels um, that are available either, you know, through cable or, or satellite. A lot of what we're looking at now is maybe it would be best to be a more of a streaming service type deal uh we're already on the site and we already have a youtube channel you know with something like you know for say uh, netflix or or something like that be better you know there's already a couple of hunting shows on there uh meat eater being one uh, that currently comes to mind so is you know we're really trying to examine is that the future direction we want to take you know away from you know more of a traditional outdoor channel because you know The thought really is, uh, are those channels going to be viable and going to be around ten years from now? So we've got to be more proactive than reactive, and figure out what direction we want to go in from there. So yeah, it's a lot to think about. You know, that's a show that's been basically, you know, a network type show since its inception in 1998. So you're talking about a pretty radical departure from what we've done in the past, but Times change, things change, and so you've really got to roll with the punches.
0: Yeah, definitely uh interesting perspective on that. So uh L, you got um any questions or you think we should go ahead and, and jump into uh the lightning well room? I
1: certainly have exhausted all of my questions. I gotta say I was talking I've been talking to Jordan for about a year to try to get you know someone on from DU TV and I reached out to a couple of the host personally and then finally i'm like okay we got to make this happen so before we get in the light room i just want to thank you for coming and i gotta say we've done a, we've done 128 some podcast episodes and i told my wife i said i'm a little bit nervous before this one this du tv means there has been a lot in my life
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> well man
2: elliot i, I appreciate that i you know, it's really great to hear from folks like yourself, the, you know, hardcore waterfowlers who've been involved with the sport and continue to be involved with it to this day, that the show has really uh, made an impact on you. It, it's really good to hear. It has
1: always had a nostalgic feel to it that no other show had. Just the way the intros have been done and and just the things that are discussed, It. it separate from all of our other hunting shows and the way it makes you feel and the history of waterfowling and the nostalgia, it just, it's certainly one of a kind. That's for sure.
2: Well, thanks. Thanks, man. We, we really are proud of that show and, uh, just, you know, look forward to continuing it as, as long as folks, you know, want to see it.
1: All right, Jordan, you ready for lightning round? Awesome.
0: Yeah, let's go ahead and jump into it. So, uh, John, just real quick, the lightning round, quick quick questions with quick answers, um, just a fun little um, speed round that we play uh, to kind of hear a little bit more about your hunting style. So, uh, first off, 20-gauge um, or 12-gauge? 28-gauge. 28-gauge. I think that's the Awesome. And then... Uh, what what type of ammo do you run?
2: Oh man, basically I, I still shooting steel, but I started shooting more business uh, rounds, spe- specifically Boss last year because I've heard so much about it, and I tell you what, from what I shot with it, I was real pleased with it.
0: Awesome. And then um, on on your Boss shot shells, uh, for what are you running for ducks as far as uh, shot size?
2: I shot those three, two and three quarter inch number five, which so seems to be like you know the the go to round everybody was really
0: loving. So I had to try it. Awesome! Actually, Elliot and I both ran the same shell for ducks. Oh, um, it
2: works. Know that I can oh, tell people yeah. right now. If you want <laughs> to have something that's more like traditional lead was when I used when I was a kid. It, it that's the closest thing I've really shot to it. Awesome. Yeah, this is working out and, perfect uh,
1: because Boss is a partner of the podcast, and then Avery. He's a partner of the podcast as well. So just so everyone knows, we did not prep him as to who our sponsors were at all. This is all natural conversation.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah,
2: yeah. You know, we never really got in touch on my Avery days. You know, that that was some great times. But, uh, you know, I was there for 11 years.
1: Well, we would certainly love to have you on again at a later time to hit even more and get an update on the show and everything.
2: Yeah, we could talk about that. That's a whole other podcast, really.
0: (laughs) And then, um, do you have... A preference on ducks or geese
2: oh man My, the younger version of myself would have said geese all day long uh, the older version is ducks.
0: awesome i think uh i think i can agree with you on that one although um this year well yeah they're both fun to shoot <laughs> there's no no doubt about that so <laughs> yeah um and then do you uh wear a face mask face paint or, n- or nothing nothing really nothing all righty and uh beard or no beard no beard all righty and elliot elliot's favorite question um what type of choke do you run
2: i like the rob roberts jokes, and specifically uh, the t3s uh I, I when i first uh talked to rob about it and i said man i either want to i either want to hit him and, and kill them dead or miss them clean. He'd say, well, you need to see three.
1: So that's, that's like a full choke, choke then. Awesome. Essentially.
2: Pretty much. Yeah. I mean, I like to shoot at that jumpers time. Yeah. At the end. yeah. Um, like I said, just would rather miss them clean or, or, kill them dead. You know, it just the crippling birds just kills me.
1: I've got, I've got one for you. What, when you hear people call snow geese sky carp, what are your thoughts?
3: I always thought that
2: was pretty hilarious, and I never heard that until, I guess, I came back to Mississippi. You know, over there in Texas, they were, you know, they were pretty much revered. I mean, because so many folks come from all over the country. I hunted with people from everywhere to hunt, to kill snows. And the notion that they were some sort of, you know, just inferior bird, And, and another thing, too, that, that's really kind of gotten me is that, it, that they, that their taste is bad. And I tell you what, I've eaten snows, man. I've cooked those things every, which way you can, you can possibly think of. And I have actually had, a, I got my own recipe that I had, I had published. Um, it's a, a barbecue snow goose enchilada.
0: That sounds delicious. That, uh, <laughs>
2: outstanding, man. Uh, but uh, I'll have to get you all the recipe. But uh, yeah, so the sky color to me is just is laughable. I I, I just think that's ridiculous. Amen.
1: Correct yeah. answer. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, so don't they? Uh, I mean, kind of to add on to that. Um, don't don't a lot of people say that? Um, like speckle belly. I've heard. Well, I've heard people call speckle belly a ribeye of the sky and sandhill cranes. But just a speckle belly. I mean, they don't seem that different of a bird from a snow I mean I know they're different they're,
2: they're really not I mean I, once again I've eaten both of those those birds extensively and there really is, is very little difference between a snow goose and a speck they, they're hunting they're living in the same areas feeding in the same fields once again I don't know where that connotation came from that snow geese were not fit to eat it just doesn't I, I swear I think you could you could take snows and tell people they respects, and people would eat them up, you know, like there's no tomorrow. I think it's almost a mental thing for people that they have in their mind that they're, they already predisposed. They're not going to be any good. But I tell you what, you were talking about the Sandhill crane. I would, I would take every goose and, and just, uh, and do away with them if I could eat Sandhill cranes <laughs> every day. And Sandhill is by far the best waterfowl there is.
1: I've never tasted it.
0: Me either.
2: Wow, oh, man, y'all got to do that. It's uh,
1: it's really hard to describe. I mean, it's that much better. Now, is the color yeah, of the meat the same? Is bad. it still a real dark red, or is it lighter colored?
2: It, it is. It is a dark red, uh, but it's, it's, it's got a different flavor to it. And it's been a while since I've been able to, you know, once I left Texas, I, I kind of left my sandhill crane hunting behind. Came, over, you know, back over this way. There's, you know, there's a few draw hunts in Tennessee now for sandhills. But other than that, there's no sandhill open season. Um, when I was down there for that DUTV tv episode on the coast, uh, I was staying with a good friend of mine that, that uh, lives down there still. And, man, I, there were cranes everywhere. And I was just looking around and I'm going, man. Unbelievable, uh, and I just didn't have time to uh, to mess with the cranes, but I,
1: I wanted to badly. It was uh, just just to eat them again. <laughs> That's great. We get Jordan. We got to get our hands on some. We've got um, sandills in Kansas. that just I don't have any idea how to hunt them or go about getting at them.
3: Sure, sure.
2: I think, you know, another. we're talking about DU Films, too. You know, there's also DU Films and there's are DU Conserve Films that we came out with last year. You know, DU Conserve is, is, is a completely habitat-based film, and it's something we're really proud of. Uh, if you haven't seen those films, you need to check it out. Uh, but anyway, we're going to do one this year. Uh, and we've got one more to shoot, and it's going to be on the Platte River in Nebraska uh, mid-March when, you know, pretty much at the peak of the Sandhill Migration to really, you know, capture that for people, you know, and a lot of folks have never seen it, and I think it's going to be fantastic. Oh, that
1: sounds that
0: sounds wonderful. Awesome. Yeah, it does. Well, I think uh, that, that pretty much wraps up the podcast for us. We really appreciate you coming on tonight um, and sharing a lot of your history and um, DU history and um, just really uh, um, interesting to hear all that, and um, I appreciate you coming on.
2: You guys, uh, thank you very much. And like I said, if you if you want to do the Avery Outdoors podcast, uh, we can we can dive off into that deal. And it, it was it, it was pretty fascinating. I, I was there. I started there in two thousand seven. It was really kind of there at the very peak of what was really one of the most iconic brands of waterfowling history. And it was just a really cool experience to be
0: in the middle of well, it. That would be great. Awesome. Well, that that sounds like a great idea. Um, we'd love to have you back on. Um, all
2: right, all right. Thanks.
0: Yep. All righty, fellas. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. I'm Jordan from Ducking Chronicles, Elliot from Freelance Duck Hunting, and we'll see you guys on the next one.